Again, it's, it's good to, to be with you all uh, and, and to gather this morning once again. Um, uh, I said it last week and uh, I'll say it again uh, this week. I'm, I'm surely grateful now for each time that we do get to gather together. And we must be careful uh, to, to not take for granted each and every Lord's Day that we do uh, get to gather uh, each and every Sunday. Um, the Church of Jesus Christ, um, especially here in the United States, has enjoyed relatively good and, and good freedom. And, and we've, we've enjoyed relatively f- a good freedom to gather, to meet, to sing as we, we just so uh, wonderfully have, to proclaim the gospel, to teach the gospel, to, and to share the gospel with freedom and, and, and liberty um, for, for many years. Um, Almost completely without, uh, with, without any uh, impedance at all, um, without any, uh, any uh, um, uh, um, conflict to that, uh, for, for just a few exceptions, that is. Um, and it has, the church has flourished under that freedom over those, over those years. Um, and historically, when you look at the history of the whole world, Historically, that is quite, uh, quite unprecedented. It's, it's a freedom that very few over the history of the world have experienced. And one thing that we've, in our study that we've done together on Wednesday nights of the, of the church history, is that's one of the, the massive things that we've noted that hopefully that we've kind of picked up is, is the freedom that we have is not the same freedom that the church has experienced over the course of most of human history. However, when you look over the statistics of the church, particularly over the past 30 years, despite having some of that, having that freedom, the, the church can be now marked more in decline than it had, or more than it can be in, in, in flourishing. And there's many factors to that. There's many things that we can kind of we can kind of write into the, the reasonings of why the church is not flourishing uh, in, in in such a freedom, uh, changing culture. Right? We can we can talk for the rest of the day about the changing culture, um, liberalism, liberalism within the church uh, that has brought about a decline of orthodoxy and the the importance of theology and just plain up made up theology. Uh, that suits the standards of what men want. So, and because of those influences and many others, in and out, the church has been plagued with apathy, comfort over mission, safety over truth, preferences as the priority rather than the growth and the maturity that comes through the faithful preaching of the gospel that brings about transformation in a local community called the church and then the bringing about of the the proclamation of the gospel based on scripture alone. And so what the church is experiencing now, especially if you're keeping up with the news, as of this week, there is more open hostility toward the church than ever before. Open hostility that, that's, 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 a, that's, that's brought about through this hostile culture and th- working through subversive local and state governments and its leaders. 
who are using their authority to attempt to control the church and to mandate to the church of Jesus Christ what they can and what they cannot do. And I say all this to you because as the church, we must be vigilant in these days. We must be vigilant in these days with the scripture, with our meeting together, vigilant in prayer together, brothers and sisters. Because we have brothers and sisters throughout our country and throughout the world who are facing a whole new set of challenges and issues that the church, I don't think, is necessarily faced. And we face challenges, certainly, but different challenges, particularly for a church that has been very used to being comfortable and gotten used to that freedom. So let us pray for them that they would be faithful in these times. Let us be compassionate toward them and kind and gracious because one day our time too might come. Can I ask you to continue to pray for us as we navigate these waters together? Although we have not, as the church, been ordered not to meet or not to sing or anything like that yet, we still must be wise and faithful in these days and in these times and in this place as the Lord has us. And certainly, once again, brothers and sisters, it is certainly a good day, and we are grateful to be able to gather as the church as the Lord in his sovereign hand has provided for us so richly in these days. Amen. And so that brings me to our passage this morning. We're, we're almost finished with Luke's gospel. Um, one of the things that we learn as children is we kind of learn, I don't know if it really comes through you know, parents or not, I'm still figuring these things out myself, but, but, but children learn how to give promises. And then they learn how to, to, to make Promises and, and, and once they kind of learn that, they're pretty free to start making like promises all the time, right? They're pretty free to start making promises all, all the time. If, if, if you let us get this puppy, we promise we'll take care of it, right? Has anyone, and, and, and I'm just curious, has anyone ever heard that from their family? Okay, so we heard that there, a couple in that family. And, and how did that work out? For, and I, I think maybe on both sides, how did that work out, right? So... Uh, you know, how does that work out to, to, the, to children who are, are making promises? To, and most of the time, we begin to realize that, man, our children are not equipped to, to fulfill these promises, so we know that we're going to have to help them out. Um, you know, we, we don't loan our children money to buy a toy that they want that they see at the store because no matter how much they promise they're going to pay us back with their allowance— we know as children that a couple bucks a week, our, they will quickly forget, and that toy will quickly be put in the closet, right? So no matter the, the promises that, that children make, we, we as parents know to, to, to kind of navigate through those wisely. However, we do teach our children that promises are, are good, that they are good, and that because we are meant to keep our commitments and our promises that we make with each other. They are actually really beautiful in making commitments to one another. And yet we teach them as well that not to make promises that they cannot keep or that they're unable to keep. You don't want to be known. This is what we kind of tell them. Or at least this is what I heard. You don't want to be known as the person who breaks their promises, who doesn't keep their 
promises. We want to be truth-tailers. We want to be honorable. We want to be just and love and, and love righteousness and to keep our word. We want our yes to be yes and our no to be no. Brothers and sisters, what we see in our passage this morning is we see Jesus telling his people that God has kept his promises. That God has fulfilled his promises, his amazing promises. And Jesus points out to them the scriptures in which Jesus or which God has fulfilled those promises. And these wonderful promises are what the disciples then are called to be witnesses of, to be witnesses to, to the world. Let's look at verse 44 and let's read together. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the song or the scripture, excuse me. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts and our minds to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. These words that Jesus spoke are, are, are probably not the words that he used the, the, the night of that we were just talking about last week, the night, the, East, the first Easter Sunday. But these are probably words that took place over the, the next 40 days that Jesus was on earth. In fact, it might even be a, a summation of what Jesus was, was already teaching them about the scriptures and how God has fulfilled the scriptures uh, before them. But however, whenever it was said, or when, wherever it was said, he said these things. And these things he said were, were to make very clear that the scriptures have been fulfilled. And that they are to be certain of those things, that the resurrected Son of God, he wants everyone that hears him to know with certainty that all that has happened to him wasn't a reaction of God. It wasn't something that just took place and God took lemons and made lemonade, but God was fulfilling his sovereign plan that has been told by the scriptures. And that as his people, we are to proclaim those promises. What do we do with them? We proclaim them. We don't stay behind in the room, locking our doors in fear of a hostile culture or governments or other people. Are these promises fulfilled, meant to stay hidden from the world? Are they meant to just stay with us? I hope you already know the answer to that question. But today, this passage not only answers that question for us, 
But Jesus shows us in this passage the power by which we can take these worthy promises and how we proclaim them as his witnesses too. In the first part of our passage this morning, uh, Jesus, he, he does something that, that if you've been with us through Luke 24, actually doesn't surprise us. Because it's the same pattern. This is the third time in this pattern that we've seen take place in Luke 24. First, the, the, the women at the beginning of the chapter who were first showed, who showed up at the empty tomb. They were perplexed and scared. Angels came to them and, and told them to what? Remember the words of Jesus. And then there was the two men on the road to Emmaus that Jesus first uh, appeared to, yet hiding himself from them, but still being before them. They, they were unable to recognize him. They were sad and hopeless as they were leaving Jerusalem because the Son of God had died. And they were hopeless and sad and leaving and actually uh, stunned by the fact that this traveler on the road had no idea what was taking place on the road. And what does Jesus incognito begin to do? He walks them through the scriptures in the same way he does with the disciples that night. He takes them through an extensive Bible study. And he shows them that there is no part of Scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus, the Son of God. And it's important for us to remember that because he did not want them to rest in their eyes and their senses alone, but he wanted them to rest in the Scriptures alone. Personal experience is good, and God uses that, and praise God, he does that, he works in it. But what is for sure and what is solid is Scripture alone. When all of our fears are abounding, when our emotions tell us otherwise, when people outside tell us otherwise, we trust in Scriptures alone. And that's what Jesus does. He's walking them through the scriptures that they would trust in the scriptures alone. He does the same thing for these disciples who were hiding in fear. He teaches them the scriptures. And this is vital. This is vital because we have, we as the church, we have been given God's word. We have been given the scriptures. We have been given the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Just like them, the word of God. And the word of God is sufficient for all belief in Christ and for salvation. We turn nowhere else. We trust in nothing else but in Scripture alone. You remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? We talked about this, I think, a few weeks ago. And at the end of the parable, uh, Abraham tells Lazarus, or the rich man says, even if we sent someone uh, from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. But they have what? The Scripture. To believe the scripture. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He points them to the word of God to believe. Look at verse 44 again. He says to them, these are my words. I love that. These are my words. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He's pointing them to the scriptures. He's pointing them to the word of God. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. 
And he said to them, verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, rise from the dead. There is a lot there, but the first thing that I want you to see once again is that Jesus is pointing them to the scriptures in order that they would understand the gospel. Verse 46 is the gospel, that he would suffer and that he would rise again. And Jesus makes the connection. You cannot understand the gospel if you don't understand the scriptures, if you don't understand the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the law. We find the gospel, the gospel of Christ. The law, in the law, we see suffering. We see his sufferings in the great institutions, in the events of the law. Because the law required a sacrifice, an atonement of a sinful people. And because of that, in Israel, in Jerusalem, it was constantly a sea of blood from the sacrifices of animals to make atonement for the sin of the people. For centuries, over and over again, animals were sacrificed. Blood was spilt. And what, what, what did that prove? What was that pointing to? What was that showing? Is that it proved over and over again that the daily sacrifices and the yearly atonement only pointed to the necessity and the need. Same word. Necessity and need for what? The one sacrifice. The once and for all ultimate sacrifice that would atone completely. Hebrews 9 makes this argument for us that if the blood and bull of, of the blood in the of the bulls and the goats were offered to sanctify over and over for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, the eternal Son of God, purify our consciences from dead works? Praise God. Amen. We have not gathered this morning with our lambs and our goats and our bulls. The sacrifice has been atoned, has been made. All the sacrifices in the Old Testament then, the requirement of the law pointed to what? Pointed that Jesus would suffer. And that he would be the sacrifice on the cross as the all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for sin. In the same way, the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, uh, Exodus 12 was prophesying. It was pointing forward to Christ's suffering. Jesus showed us that in the upper room, that it was made clear that he is the Passover lamb. And just as faith in the promises of God that the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt would deliver the Israelites from the angel of death, from the wrath and the justice of God, so does faith, brothers and sisters, in Jesus that his blood brings life and brings forgiveness of sin because Christ is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple both pointed to Christ. They both pointed to, to Christ. On the, the mercy seat, atop of the, the Ark of the Covenant, that was where the, the blood was sprinkled and poured for the atonement in the sins every year by the high priest. The New Testament uses this glorious word, and it's a word we're very familiar with called propitiation. We love that word. And you ought to love it if you don't. 
propitiation. Because it describes for us the work of Christ as our sacrifice that once and for all satisfied the wrath of God toward his people. And that word propitiation, brothers and sisters, it comes from the root word, which means mercy seat. So when John says that he is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, what is John saying? John is saying that Christ's sacrifice isn't just a New Testament idea. But it was being told throughout the ages in Israel with each and every sacrifice, with every time blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. It was pointing to the offering that Christ was going to make of himself that would completely, for all time, satisfy the wrath of God toward his people. Amen. And the prophets we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most epic and the most well-known of the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms foretelling Christ's suffering is from Isaiah 53. Jesus directly points to and quotes this text. He refers to it often because he knows this is directly speaking of him. If you're not familiar with that passage, write it down, look at it later. Isaiah 53. And Jesus directly points to it constantly. At the beginning of our gathering, I wonder if you caught when we read from Hosea chapter 6, especially in verse 2 that said, After two days he will what? Revive us. And on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Now Hosea was preaching to a very sinful Israel. And he was preaching to an Israel that would repent, or that would be called to repent, excuse me. But there was nothing in Israel's history that shows us that verse 2 had been fulfilled in them. Because they were still unbelieving and unfaithful. But what the prophet was pointing to was to a faithful remnant of Israel. To Jesus Christ, that he would raise from the dead and on the third day, because he was the only believing and faithful Israel. And when Jesus rose from the grave with himself, brothers and sisters, rose believing Israel and Gentiles. And lastly, in the Psalms, we see the gospel as well. Psalm 22 is the quintessential psalm to this. We've, we've talked about Psalm 22 throughout our study in Luke's gospel. It gives us the, a very technical description of one dying of crucifixion before the cross was ever even invented. It describes Jesus' experience even in some of the smallest of details. The Psalms also point to his resurrection, particularly in Psalm 16, 8 through 11. It speaks of a resurrection, but David didn't raise from the dead. He's still in the grave. But Christ, the son of David, did. And he fulfilled the prophecy of Psalm 16 because he, he rose and he was not abandoned to Hades. Jesus is the theme of the entire scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus explains this to his disciples and to us because God's promises in the scriptures have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
He sent his son to suffer for us, to be that suffering servant, to be our atoning sacrifice, and to be resurrected from the dead, accomplishing our salvation. Now, the glorious news about what happens in the middle of of verse 44 and verse 46, we see in verse 45. We don't want to glaze right over it. What does it say that he did? He opened their minds to understanding the scriptures. Oh, how many glaze over this. And, And miss the importance of the work of the Lord and the Holy Spirit to open our minds into to divine illumination to understand the scriptures. The veil had been over their minds, the minds of these disciples and their, and their hearts, and, and, is, and, and it had to be removed, and it now had been. Do, do you remember in Luke when Jesus would tell of his suffering and his death and his resurrection, that, that after, kind of immediately after, the disciples would be standing there going, what? What is he talking about? Why would he die? I mean, look what he's doing. Look how popular it is. Why would they kill him? Like they had no clue of what was happening because their minds have been veiled about his suffering and his his death and his resurrection. But on that day, the Holy Spirit illuminated the Holy Scriptures that they would see the fulfillment of the Scriptures in Christ. And what does that do? That sets them on a course for the apostolic preaching and the mission that we will see throughout the rest of the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 helps us understand that this veil is, is over all in their natural state. None can see and understand the scriptures until the Holy Spirit does what? Gives us the ability to see when the veil then is lifted. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But their minds were hardened For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I love that. I love that connection there. Now, when the Lord opens our hearts to our minds and the veil is lifted, the Holy Spirit is there with us. He is guiding us. He is leading us. He is removing that veil, and there is freedom. You know, when the Lord opened my heart and my mind to see the Scriptures and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is my only way of salvation, I was about 13 years old. In fact, I'm pretty sure I was 13 years old. Although not growing up in church my entire life like many of you, you did in church your whole life. And my, my family, however, at the time had been going to church for a, for a couple of years at the time. And for those couple of years, I heard about salvation. I heard the gospel. I heard good preaching. I heard about Jesus and the cross. I heard about the forgiveness of sins hundreds of times. But nothing. No movement, no change in my heart. I just went to church because that's what we did. However, in June of 1994, which does make me 13 years old at that time, at Vacation Bible School, 
I was 13. I wasn't even supposed to be a part of the class. I was helping lead the wreck. I decided on that Thursday that I would go be a part of the fifth grade class. Because that's what all cool 13-year-olds want to do, go hang out with the fifth graders, right? And that just so happened to be the day that my pastor, Jorge Acevedo, came in and just gave the gospel to a bunch of children. And I remember that day so vividly because I heard the gospel. <laughs> I mean, my, my mind and my heart heard the gospel. I heard of my sinfulness and I was broken. I heard of my inability to save myself. I heard about the, the just punishment that I deserve, the wrath of God for even as a, as a sixth, soon to be sixth grader, that I was a sinner and I deserved the wrath of God. But yet I heard of the mercy of God and the grace of God who sent his son that he died on the cross and he paid the penalty of death for me and that I could be saved. A little skinny, nothing sinner from Melbourne, Florida, 13 years old, that I could even be saved. I mean, I heard it. My mind was open. My heart was opened. And when I understood, guess what I did? I repented and I asked for the forgiveness of my sins and I turned toward him as the best way that I could. And I trusted in him as my savior. The Lord was the one who opened my mind and my heart. I didn't understand these things at the time. But that certainly makes sense to me now. To understand these things, and he does that for his glory. Do you remember when you heard the gospel? When your mind was open to understand? That was the Lord. That was the, the, the Lord. That was the Holy Spirit. But that's not the only time that the Holy Spirit opens our minds to the to the scriptures. Have you ever been studying the scriptures? Have you heard a passage preached that, you've, that you've, you've read it and you've heard it a thousand times, but then all of a sudden your eyes are just kind of open to it? You're like, why didn't I see this? How could I not see this? Ryan told me this week. He was, he's reading through Luke's gospel now, and he got to the, to the passage, Fear not, little flock, for your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. And he said he was taken back by it, just stunned by it. And I was like, bro, you know I preached that like, a couple months back and you were there. The Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our minds and it's still happening to us all. But Jesus takes his disciples back to his word and he shows them the gospel. But he also provides the way that they would understand and that they would see the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, put yourselves under the, under the word of God. Put yourselves under the word of God often. Put yourselves there frequently as much as possible. And when you do, pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your mind and your heart to the scriptures. I remember in seminary, my systematic theology professor taught us this really simple prayer that when we read the scriptures and we had this list of texts we were supposed to read through that correspond to what we were studying in, in class. And he said, he said, pray this every time you read the scriptures. Pray, Lord, open my mind and my heart to your word and open your word to me. Very simple, but very biblical. So we have some great and some glorious promises that God has fulfilled. That's what the gospel is. 
All the scriptures, as Jesus explained, all pointed to God fulfilling all the things that were written about him and his bodily resurrection. As he was standing, sitting, and eating broiled fish in front of them, it was all evidence of God's glorious work that he had told them since the beginning. And now with their minds opened and unveiled that they can see, they can understand, and and they could now delight in these fulfilled promises. And not just in, in, in promises, but promises fulfilled for them. So these weren't just abstract promises made, but they were promises that were fulfilled for for them and for their salvation and for the forgiveness of their sin. And yet Jesus makes for them another connection. He makes another connection for them. These promises fulfilled is in the gospel, and this gospel is now what? Their mission. And he makes a connection between the scriptures that have been fulfilled to now their mission. And that is this. This mission that I'm sending you on is not new. It's also what has been taught throughout scriptures. And this is point two. We have glorious promises, the gospel, to proclaim. There are three things that Jesus taught his disciples. He taught them what? That he'd suffer. He taught them that he would rise from the dead. And in verse three, or third, verse 47... That repentance and for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Out of the three, which is left to be done? Which is, which is left to be done? Which is the command? The first two were the imperatives, but now it's the, the command that Jesus is, is, is telling them to be obedient to. To be obedient to the proclamation of the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and repentance of sin in his name. Because why? Because he is the fulfillment of God's promises to all the nations. Not just Israel, but to all the nations starting in Jerusalem. Look at verse 48. Jesus says, you are witnesses to these things. Now, now we we've used this word often, and then particularly in the in the, the verb form of this word to to witness, right? To to give testimony, to share, to to tell someone. And we use it to to, to describe our, our evangelism, and, and that's a good thing. We should we should do that. However, Jesus is not using it in the, the verb form. He's using it in the, the noun. He's calling them witnesses. He's calling them witnesses. This is who you are. You are witnesses, but also this is what you will do. You are my witnesses, and if you are my witnesses, then this is what you will do. They were witnesses to what? To the works of Christ. They were witnesses to even more than that, to the the fulfillment of God's promises. But now they are witnesses to what? The gospel, the gospel that has been taught throughout all the scriptures. If you read Luke part two, which is Acts, you will see a group of people who understood this idea. And they took on that identity of being witnesses. And it was completely understood by the apostles and in the church as they what? Preached the gospel. 
How? According to the scriptures. Being a witness is a mandate for missions. To go to all the nations for, uh, for all the disciples. Not just them, but for all disciples and for all of those who follow Christ. Whose hearts and minds have been open to understanding the word of God. We are all witnesses. We too are witnesses to the same things. Because we have been given understanding and we have been given the word of God. And that makes us two witnesses. We do not just witness. We are the witnesses. Because we have been given understanding and the word of God. The Lord has fulfilled his promises. He's given us his word. He has opened our minds to understanding. He has also provides for us a new identity of being his witnesses. But verse 49, there's even more. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father to you. Another promise? Oh, what is that promise? Well, in Acts, again, part two, chapter one, we know what this promise is. Jesus says, he says, to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will baptize you. And the Holy Spirit will baptize you in the Holy Spirit, right? You will be baptized. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the, the Holy Spirit has been sent to his people as what? A fulfillment of God's promises. And God fulfilled that promises, Acts chapter 2. Ten days after Jesus' ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. But this too, brothers and sisters, isn't just a New Testament promise. This isn't something that Jesus just started. It was something that was in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul unpacks this for us in Galatians 3, 13. says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus... The blessings of Abraham, what? That's Old Testament, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this is what Jesus is telling us. The promise of the Father is to give the Holy Spirit and he would also come to the Gentiles. The substance of the promise was made to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And that promise is that we would enjoy all the blessings of it. All the strength, all the growth, all the flourishing that the Holy Spirit does in the life of each and every believer through our union with Jesus Christ. The foundations of missions then is not just a New Testament idea, but it finds its heart in the Old Testament. In the same promise of the Holy Spirit in Genesis 12 to Abraham, there is another promise. There is the promise that God made to him that he would be and make a great nation. That he would bless him and make him great. And that great nation was not just an Israel nation, but it was a nation made up of all peoples. And that would come through Christ. And then God told Abraham, he said that in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. 
the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the call that we are to witness and be witnesses to these things. And the fulfillment of God's promises is so that we as his church would be a blessing and to take the gospel to the nations starting here in Statesboro. And to make his name great among the nations. What a glorious message and truth that we have been called into. That we have been transformed by. That we have been made new and renewed over and over and over again by. And that we are also made into his witnesses. Here's what I want to close with. I hope that you have come to an understanding and believe that you too, if you are in Christ, you have been called into this grand narrative as witnesses. You too are a part of these things. And since we have been given the word of God, believing that Jesus Christ has completely fulfilled all of it, since you have been given the Holy Spirit who has made you and I alive in Christ, has made you a new creation, brought you from death to life, who still dwells in you this morning, proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ, testifying that you are adopted sons of God in Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, we are witnesses of these things. And as witnesses, we proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the world. We do not merely witness to these things, but we are witnesses. It drips out of every part of our lives. This is no time for us to hide behind locked doors, to shrink back in fear. But we have been given the Holy Spirit of God, the promise of the Father, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ God is sovereign over all of our days. Amen. For his glory, he is sovereign. And so, brothers and sisters, as we have been called witnesses to these things in these days in particular, may each and every one of us be his faithful witnesses in this time and in this place. Not as citizens of this world. Not merely as citizens of the United States, but as citizens of the kingdom of God to his glory and to the praise of his name forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. And may it wash over us now, God. Lord, you use this response time, Lord, to encourage one another as we speak. And as we share, and may you be glorified. Help us to be your witnesses, even, even here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.